and and we've we've kind of just just really landed on him as a villain, like fully into a villain. Like we were, we were rooting for him for a while in the kind of weird like perverse way that you root for anti-villains of like, ooh, what if they get found out? I hope they don't get found out. Um, and then. <laughs> Welcome, 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 everybody, to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. We are excited to be with you today at the start of the long-anticipated themed month. Woohoo! This yeah, is yeah. a season after season ritual. It is part of our pattern. If you're new to the podcast, welcome to your first themed month. If you're an old hat to the podcast, welcome to another one. This season, we are spending the month of November focused on scripts in which murder plays a central role. Yes, yes. So uh, we got some some pretty good uh, different uh, versions of how murder plays plays into it. But today we are starting with the murder play. The, this is the <laughs> murder play. And although the other famous play by this playwright also involves murder, this True. is really the murder play. True. Really, really, this is the murder playwright in general. Many of <laughs> many of his plays have this sort of central theme. Is it, doesn't in Titus Andronicus there's like a dead body every two pages or something yeah. crazy like that? Yep, <laughs> bloodiest play in the history of theater, probably. Ah, uh, well, okay, we gave a little bit away there. We're talking about William Shakespeare. This is our, I think, our third Shakespeare play or something like that. But today we're talking about one that is just at the very top of my list of Shakespeare plays. And it's so great that we get to come to it in Murder Month because of how much death and destruction, <laughs> how much the the anticipation of murder and the consequence of murder and the murders that flow from murder make up what happens within the pages of Macbeth. Yes, we are jumping into Macbeth today. Don't worry, neither of us are broadcasting from a theater, so we're going to say the name all over the place today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yes, I'm excited to get to jump into this one as well. This is one of those plays that uh, lives on in imaginations of, of many theater artists um, to, to whether whether or not they've been in them or, or uh, want to be in them or dream up stage design or costume design for them. Uh, this is, this is a, a play of some... Uh, uh, kind of closeness to a lot of theater artists, including you, Jacob. Including me. We had the great fun privilege a couple of weeks ago of talking about Tally's Folly, a play that Jackson was in. And this week we get to talk about Macbeth, which is a play I was in. In fact, I was the Macbeth of hey Macbeth. Yeah, yeah, it's a great show. I, I actually had graduated by the time that show went on, and I was so happy to be able to come back and see it. It was so super cool. Y'all did a great job, I thought. Yeah, and it was just a really fun project. It was my senior year. It was that last big role, of course, and a lot of my friends played the other roles. A lot of us, when we look back at our time in college, which is farther and farther away nowadays, it, <laughs> that's one of those memories that we bring up, getting to do this show. And just in preparation for this podcast, I've 
watch so many different clips or even a full production or two of different people's Macbeths. And the because of the way Shakespeare is written, or Shakespeare writes, I guess is more technically correct, it, it just stays in your bones. I mean, yeah. most of the soliloquies I couldn't just do cold anymore, but I can speak along with them. I mean, I, it's still in there based on that pentameter, that rolling rhythm speech. Yeah, and that's that's part of why the, the play sticks in so many, even the listeners' minds, is that that kind of rolling speech. We'll get into all that, though, as we as we get into the proper conversation around the play. Before we do that, though, I do want to take a second and thank our patrons over at patreon.com slash Podcast. Thank you to all of you who have made the decision to help out the podcast in that way. We love getting to do this show. We love getting to have these conversations. We love bringing themed months and, and special guests each season. Um, uh, and, and the show has some costs associated with associated with it and we are thankful to our patrons over at patreon.com who have uh wanted to be a part of the community and help the community in that way um if you are a longtime listener to the show or if you're just listening to the first time and you're liking what you're hearing and you're looking for a way to help out the show patreon.com slash no script podcast is a great way to do that it completely supports the show um we have a number of different tiers over there at the one dollar the five dollar tiers uh at the five dollar tier you get a uh, producer credit on some shows as maybe maybe you've heard over the course of this season so uh, if you're looking for a way to help out the show patreon.com slash no script podcast cast is a great way to do that thank you to all of our patrons we will see you over there and now back to the script here we go. All right. So, as is the case with the Shakespeare plays that come across on this podcast, there's a, a somewhat of a negotiation about who has the harder job. Who has to summarize the <laughs> wild intricacy of Shakespeare plots, five-act, multiple subplot Shakespeare plots that they are what they are. They're unwieldy and hard to grasp. And on the other hand, who has to do the context for a play that's been around since the 1600s, for right. a play that's been done, you know, more than any other play in the history of the world. Not that that's specifically Macbeth, but plays by William Shakespeare. Shakespeare's the most popular playwright. So in both the synopsis coming later and in the context which I'm about to do now, these are these are but glimpses but glimpses of the life that these plays have. So Macbeth, we think it was probably performed for the first time around 1606. 1606. Some scholars have it earlier than that. Um, what we do know or think we know is that King James I, who was the patron of Shakespeare's acting company, he was believed to be descended from Banquo. Of course, as Jackson will tell you, Banquo's descendants being kings is a big part of what happens in Macbeth. So Shakespeare writing this play in which the lineage of his patron is sort of uh, enshrined in this myth might have been part of what he was doing at the time. Uh, look, there's a lot of productions that happened way back when, but Sir William Davenant, he created an adaption later on that went on to be used for forever until it ended up being mostly discarded as people returned to the original script. Macbeth was thought to be performed in North America for the first time by one of the first American theater companies. That, of course, speaks to Shakespeare's significance. One of the first American North American theater companies ever probably produced Macbeth for the first time in North America. Um, it was called the Hallam Company, but there were lots of other names. Um, they kind of existed in that late 1700s time period. 
One of the more famous early people to play Macbeth was William Charles Macready. He played that role for like 30 years in the early 19th century. And when he played the role and someone else in town, another famous actor, played the role at the same time or in similar time periods, the conflict between those two actors who supported what actually ended up causing a riot. So the story goes. And so the bloody history of Macbeth in theaters begins to be established. Some of the things that happened to Macbeth as the modern era starts to develop, in the middle of the 1800s, what starts to happen in theater, you'll know from your theater history, is that special effects begin to become much more advanced. We're able to do a lot more with lighting and sound, and of course, way more now even than then. But for a show like Macbeth, which is so supernatural, in which special effects can play such a significant role, that moment in theater history where special effects begin begin to become complex, begin to become storytelling uh, equipment that is much more subtle and usable, that really affects how the show is perceived and performed. Another really important thing that happens to Macbeth, that happened, of course, with all of Shakespeare's plays, is that as Stanislavski's psychological realism acting methods, the pursuits of goals and tactics and getting things from the other, as that starts to influence acting, that changes the playing of a character like Macbeth. Also, interesting to think about with this show is uh, how the perception of Macbeth changes across the 20th century as the world deals with uh, bad dictator after bad dictator after bad dictator. Macbeth is a dictator, a tyrant in the show. How is the perception of him as the protagonist and as a tyrant, how does that change when you're in the middle of a war with someone like Adolf Hitler? I mean, those are interesting things that change the perception of the character. Some famous things that happened as we get closer to now. Orson Welles famously starred and directed in uh, what he called Voodoo Macbeth, which was a, a Macbeth that was influenced heavily by Haitian culture. It ended up sparking a riot in Harlem where it was performed because the argument was basically Orson Welles was co-opting black culture for entertainment and sort of making it into this scary murder association thing. Um, other actors who famously have played Macbeth, of course, Laurence Olivier is one of the more famous productions, performances of Macbeth in history. Ian McKellen opposite Judy Dench, that production from when they were both young is still around, still heralded as one of the great Macbeth performances. Anthony Sher, Patrick Stewart was in a production which was inspired by Stalin's reign. Uh, Kenneth Branagh, of course, he's probably played every male Shakespeare character in existence. <laughs> he played Macbeth at one time. Uh, Nicole Williamson played Macbeth opposite Helen Mirren as Lady Macbeth. Jonathan Price played Macbeth. Derek Jacoby played Macbeth. And there's been tons of movie adaptions of Macbeth. Most recently, and two that you should be excited about, already in existence, you can go rent it. In fact, I rented it just the other day and rewatched it, is Michael Fassbender. And I apologize that I'm really terrible at pronouncing her name. Uh, but uh, Miriam Cotier, it's a it's the French name, um, Marion Cotillard. I'm, you know, I'm bad at pronunciation, and <laughs> French is hard to pronounce. So whoever that actor is, I apologize. She played Lady Macbeth. That movie's awesome. It is a heavily arranged Macbeth, so the 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 
text is moved around a lot, which made some Shakespearean scholars angry. But boy, is it a spectacularly acted and directed production. And then coming out as this podcast is coming out is a movie that we should be really excited about, directed by one of the Coen brothers, is Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand in a black and white Macbeth that just looks stunning. Those are coming out now. So Macbeth, you know, first produced probably in early 1600s, is having movies made about it with some of the more famous, talented actors right now in 2021. I mean, the legacy of this script is enormous. Yeah, it's incredible the staying power that the themes of this play has and that it can continue to be reinvented and reinterpreted. Um, I'm just going to give us a quick synopsis of this play, this this very well-known play. Um, So uh, act one, uh, we get introduced to uh, the the big main characters. We get uh, uh, Macbeth is introduced, who is this warrior, who uh, a Scottish warrior who has turned back a a Norwegian and Irish assault against Scotland. He is a cousin uh, of some relation to to King Duncan, um, and Duncan uh, is is very appreciative for for his uh, for his victory. On the way back from the victory, Macbeth and Banquo, two generals of the Scottish army, are encounter these three witches, and these three witches prophesy over them that that Macbeth will become king, and then Banquo will sire kings. Again, uh, probably a reference to uh, the patron of of Shakespeare's theater. Um, uh, they they uh, somewhat. Uh, 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 don't believe them at first, but then very quickly, Macbeth uh, gets the first one of their predictions true. True, he becomes the thane of of a bigger country than than he was before by virtue of his victory. So right away, it, it comes true, and uh, some of his other ambitions are revealed. Um, he 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 wants to become king, so he uh, proceeds to go to the king. He uh, who is who thanks him for his work, and then of course names uh, Duncan names his son Malcolm as his heir after this after this battle. Pretty notable scene where we get an aside from uh, Macbeth about how this is going to be a problem. I'm going to have to get around Malcolm somehow as well as Duncan if I want to be king. They uh, retreat to Inverness, which is where uh, Macbeth's home is, and he sends ahead word that he is coming home to his wife, Lady Macbeth, and uh, also this uh, prophecy that he got of the witches. Lady Macbeth uh, hatches a plan along with uh, with Macbeth to kill Duncan and uh, take the throne from, from Duncan's line. Um, that's that's most of Act One is kind of that the ensuing uh, incidents of that Act Two is uh, the the actual killing of Duncan and the aftermath. Lady Macbeth and Macbeth f- managed to pull off on after the night of celebration this this killing of the king. A lot of famous lines are in that scene. We'll get to some of them when we get into conversation. Interestingly, that act has the scholars say the most sound effects called for of any Shakespeare play are oh. all of the sound effects called for in that dark night of murder that takes place as Duncan is being killed and all of the stuff around it. Yeah, that's fascinating. This this play has a lot of technical elements in it. A lot of blood, a lot of daggers, a lot of noises. Um, so, um, so yeah, Act 2 is is a lot around that. You get um, uh, Banquo continues to float through the scenes. Banquo is on, on watch that night with his son Fleance, um, and uh, he's kind of tricked into a leaving watch by, by Macbeth, who eventually goes in and does the deed. Um, however, he kind of panics and leaves a lot of evidence behind, comes out with the daggers, not having... Uh, 
uh, kind of shown that someone else could have done it. And so Lady Macbeth has to go in and kind of arrange the scene in such a manner that it looks like the guards killed Duncan. The following morning, uh, 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 Macbeth takes uh, some of the advisors. There's a bunch of advisors in this play with a lot of, a lot of other names that only kind of come names. up every once in a while. That's yep. Shakespeare for you. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, one of the advisors runs in, finds the king dead, and thus they, uh, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, pull off this ruse that they are grieving uh, what has happened. At the end of that scene, Malcolm and Donald Bain, who are the two sons of Duncan, decide to run away because they, they kind of see the way that the waters are turning um, and that Macbeth will probably be named by all of these advisors in, in charge. And so they run. They're afraid because they see they perhaps see that some sort of foul play is afoot. It's it's a very interesting moment why they choose to take off and and truthfully how that related to the Macbeth's plans. I mean, the the king names Malcolm his heir just before Macbeth murders him, the king. And it's not like, it doesn't seem like their plan includes dealing with the princes somehow. So that's always been a little, an odd part to me. Like, were they planning on the princes running away, taking the fall for their father's death, and thus clearing the way for Macbeth and Lady Macbeth to become king and queen? I'm not totally sure. Were they planning to kill them too? Right, right. I mean, is it or is it like they feel so threatened? That's an interesting. It's not in the line, so you kind of have to decide in the blocking how threatened uh, Malcolm and Donald Bain are by Macbeth. Uh, it's kind of an interesting thing to play with 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 those characters there. Um, act three is, is centered on the killing of Banquo. Now, Banquo is the general who overheard the uh, the, the the witches on the moors uh, proclaiming that Macbeth would be king, so Macbeth feels threatened by him, um, and so he brings in these assassins who go out and kill Banquo and try to kill his son, Fleance, who manages to escape, thus ensuring the line of Stuarts for later. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, the, what what happens though after that is a pretty famous scene where Macbeth begins to lose it. The killing, uh, this this kind of uh, repeated killing and and trying to bring about the fate that has been proclaimed to him is starting to uh, weigh heavily on his soul. And he s- maybe sees Banquo's ghosts, maybe sees something that scares him, but probably sees some ghost of Banquo at this dinner that Banquo was supposed to show up to. And he goes crazy in front of all of the different advisors of Scotland. The kind of last scene of that act is the various advisors of Scotland saying, boy, he's going crazy. Wonder where the other, <laughs> where the other sons of Duncan are. Um, <laughs> and uh, then they begin to, uh, you kind of begin to see that that his grip on the throne is slipping. And there's uh, you also see Lady Macbeth's kind of grip on Macbeth is slipping in that scene. Um Act four is centered around another killing, which is the killing of Macduff's family. Uh, Macbeth gets very worried about uh, hanging on to the throne and continues to worry about, about whether or not he'll be able to pull it off or not. So he goes to the three sisters again, gets their advice, and they give him uh, a couple other quotes, like if the forest of uh, <laughs> the forest nearby Dunsinane is going to come. What's what's the forest name? It's a uh, famous Burnham name. Burnham Wood. Burnham Wood ever moves. That's the day that you will die. And no one born, no man born of women will ever kill you and so uh yeah so he um he he goes back he finds out that the thane of fife who is macduff is against him so he goes and has his family killed while he's gone and macduff is meanwhile down in england visiting malcolm who manages to get macduff on his side even as the news of macduff's family's killing reaches them and they they kind of galvanize they're bringing uh, forces from england to overtake the throne again 
Act five um, has more killing, um, but less centralized around one person. Um, there's uh, this in this act, uh, Lady Macbeth has gone sufficiently insane at this point uh, as a result of what uh, she's done and what they've done together. Um, and uh, this is the famous kind of hand washing scene where she's trying to get rid of this this uh, blot of blood that won't out, escape her. Out, damned spot. Yep, that's the one. And then then uh, the kind of ensuing climax of the play, which is all of these forces arriving at Dunsinane to overthrow Macbeth. Um, of course, the the famous uh, the famous ending, which is Macduff shows up finally and and challenges Macbeth to a duel. Turn, hellhound, <laughs> turn! It's so quotable. It's so quotable. Um, the the uh, convenient bit of information that uh, Macduff was born by a C-section comes out, um, and thus could be someone who is not a woman born by a little bit of a loophole, and thus can't yeah, kill it's Macbeth. A, it's a large loophole. It makes you <laughs> yeah. question actually the validity of the weird sister's prophecy. Yeah, and and whether or not it was yeah, ordained by some some sort of force or rather kind of self-fulfilled by Macbeth in the end. Um the play ends uh, with uh, 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 the killing of Macbeth, though I believe uh, most of the time that happens off stage. Um, and uh, then the kind of ins- the, the 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 last part, the the denouement of the scene, where Malcolm uh, kind of assumes control of Scotland again. Macbeth has been killed, and uh, the country tries to pick up the pieces. There we go. That's that's my best effort at, at trying to sum up the play for you. No, that's a lot. It's a lot of plot, and it's a lot of murder and death. And actually, one of my first observations as I reread Macbeth for the purpose of discussing it in Murder Month. And this is not going to be a very profound observation, but it just struck me the significance of death in the plot. Now, yes, oh, that's very obvious. Yes, but here's kind of what I mean, and here's what struck me about it. The first major scenes that aren't about the Weird Sisters are about murder. They're about Macbeth basically uh, sending his sword from the head to the bottom of the guy who's been leading the rebellion against Duncan. It's a bloody description from this officer who's been hurt describing to Duncan the way that Macbeth slaughtered this guy who was leading the rebellion in front of everybody. Then the weird sisters come back. Then we come back and we learn that the the Thane of Cawdor, who is eventually going to be Macbeth, at this time it's a different person, that he is going to be executed. So Duncan, as a king, is surrounded by death in the early parts of the play. And for a play in which one of the themes undoubtedly is the 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 world around death, the way that death and the human soul are interwoven, you sort of wonder what Shakespeare's saying about like what Duncan's, because of the world Duncan has put himself in, where he has his officers conducting executions and bloody wars, if that does not lead to Duncan's own death in some uh, spiritual, moral way. Right. There's certainly, like, what history remains of these real, somewhat real-life figures that are in this play. Um, uh, they were real-life figures. They, you know, people with these names existed and did similar things. Um, Duncan was one of these these figures who, uh, who was uh, judged for the way he ruled the country and whether or not uh, he held to the rule of law enough and, and maybe caused these battles. So, yeah, I think there is some judgment against against Duncan, and, and you see him in, in a very different light from Macbeth. I think the the reason why Macbeth is ushered into control after the death of Duncan is because he's so well loved by so many people around. He kind of exempl- 
exemplifies this like you know, stereotypical kingliness um, to a lot of people, this warrior who can go out and fight their battles for them. And yet he gets it so uh, foully. Yeah, I think it's Lady Macduff that says this as she's near to be murdered that, and I could be wrong about the character, but I think it's Lady Macduff who says that Macbeth used to be known as someone who was honest. Before all of this usurping and killing and tyrancy Tyrancy? Before all yeah. of this began, Macbeth was known as someone who was honest, who upheld, the, he was loyal to the king. I mean, in the in the Fastbender Macbeth, they do the thing that a lot of Shakespeare movies do where they give you some context and text at the beginning of the movie, and the way that whoever wrote that contextualized it was that there is this rebellion against Duncan, and Macbeth is one of the few people who remains loyal to the king. And when Duncan arrives at his castle and Macbeth is agonizing over whether to commit this murder or not, he says, Duncan's here in double trust. I'm his, not only am I his host who should protect him from murders, but I'm his subject who ought to be loyal to him. Yeah, yeah. And that scene is also fascinating because he's like dealing with this like, uh, you know, am, am I going to be... Uh, he compares uh, what what Duncan's reception in heaven or afterlife um, will be like compared to his. And he, he basically comes down on there's no way I'm getting into anywhere good if I kill Duncan in my yeah. <laughs> in mm-hmm. my own home because I am twice I would be twice cursed because I'm twice his host or twice his protector in this situation. And at this moment is where we get the famous, uh, is this a dagger I see before me? He is led to the murder. And actually, I think it comes in the next scene because Lady Macbeth comes in and convinces him to do it. But in this area of the play, he's led to Duncan's bedside to commit the murder basically by this hallucination of a dagger. And hallucinations run throughout Macbeth from beginning to end. And this is where I have... I don't know. It's an interesting thought about what might be going on with Macbeth. I'm not sure if it's supported by the text or not, but I think it is interesting. And my question is this. In the dinner scene, right, Macbeth is seeing this ghost of Banquo. Lady Macbeth is trying to say, shut up. You're embarrassing us in front of our friends, all of your subjects. What's going on? And so what Lady Macbeth tells this group of gathered Scottish nobles is basically – Since childhood, Macbeth has had hallucinations. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. It'll pass eventually. Don't worry too much about it. Now, you could say, and I think most people do say, she's just, she's inventing a lie. She's lying to cover the fact that Macbeth is acting crazy at the dinner table in order to, you know, defend his honor, I guess, in front of his friends, whatever. What if that's, but what if that's true? is my question of Macbeth. What if Macbeth is well known for having hallucinations? When he says, Banco, I see Banco, oh my gosh. Lady Mac- what is Lady Macbeth? She says, this is exactly like the freaking dagger that you said led you to Duncan's <laughs> bed. You, ha- you have these hallucinations all the time. There's this interesting moment when Lady Macbeth, um, when she receives Macbeth's letter, and she she reads his description of these weird sisters, and she says almost nothing about them. In fact, she says that uh, I may pour my spirits in thine ear and chastise with the valor of my tongue. So here's this kind of off the wall interpretation that I've I've thought about actually since I played Macbeth. I, this is not how I played it, but I've always wondered: Could you? 
could you read the story this way? What if Macbeth is has had hallucinations since he was a child? Now this halluc- this weird sisters thing ends up being true, but Lady Macbeth doesn't believe him. It's another hallucination. Of course, he's crazy seeing weird sisters, no duh. But what does Lady Macbeth do? I'm going to use this to convince him to kill Duncan. Hmm. <laughs> That's a fascinating reading for sure. Yeah, the kind of wondering around around whether whether or not all these visions have have a basis in something older. Um, it, because it's 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 interesting to think about the supernatural in this play, right? Because there's these witches, there's these uh, these illusions, these visions that happen throughout, um, and and you kind of have to pick apart where where exactly, or you have to make choices because there's there's a plethora of choices available to you, but the the, the choice of whether you know. You, you could enter the realm of saying, well, maybe Macbeth hallucinates these witches. And yet there's that pesky scene at the beginning where Banquo right. also sees the Banquo's witches. Banquo there. So I, th- I think <laughs> the weird sisters have to be real. But that doesn't mean Lady Macbeth believes they're real. Because right. honestly, one of the big questions of this play is, why exactly do they need to murder Duncan? Uh, Macbeth is told that he's going to be the Thane of Cawdor and basically without doing a thing about it himself other than just winning the war on behalf of Duncan he's handed the Thane of Cawdorship and in fact he says if chance will have me king then chance may crown you or actually why chance may crown me without my stir he says this early in the play right look if, if these crazy supernatural stuff is going to make me king they'll handle it no big deal I'll just let it happen and then there's the scene where Duncan and names Malcolm his heir, and that makes Macbeth go, crap, well, you know, maybe I do need to murder him in order to be... But do they? I mean, might he have just been made king by the supernatural power of the world if he had done nothing? And may that have been a fruitful, healthy kingship? Maybe. Right. Well, that begins to lean into one of the big questions of this play is whether or not uh, anyone is doomed to something or they choose to do something um, or fated to do something or they make choices that, that, that lead them along a path. And and Macbeth is certainly in that vein. You you have you have that line that I think he says to Banquo early on. You know whatever whatever may happen, the fates you know let's let's what, whatever may chance to happen will happen, and I don't have to worry about it. But then right away after after that scene, he's named the Thane of Cawdor, and um and he's he has an aside to the audience about stars hide your fires, let not light see the black my black and deep desires. So so you know that there's like there's something else under him too, where he's like he is ambitious for something. He's striving for something. But yeah, it's a great question of if he had just wrote it out, maybe he would have been just, you know, I don't know what sort of tragedy would have befallen Malcolm, but uh, but, maybe, <laughs> but maybe he would have been uh, more fruitfully king. And instead, you know, there's the question of whether or not uh, he's he's affected it in this in this direction by as a result of his own ambitions. Yeah, and and it, it ends up being one of those questions about patience, right? I mean, does he have to be king tomorrow? The weird sisters say he's going to be king, but he and Lady Macbeth decide like we're going to kill Duncan tonight. Right. Better do it. it has to be tonight. <laughs> and later in the play, on the moment, really the moment where Macbeth's madness becomes most fully obvious, he basically says, I'm not going to be able to get the quote exactly right, but he basically says, you know, uh, let the first things of my thought, of my heart be the first things of my hand or something, something around the language like that, right? Like anything I think or feel I'm going to do immediately right now. 
And so there's this sort of a subtler um, motif throughout Macbeth of the unwillingness to wait for what might rightfully come to you. Yeah. Yeah. And then the fear of waiting uh, after after the deed has been done. Right. Because the fear of or the reason Banquo is eventually killed and the reason why Macduff's family is killed is because there's this fear of what happens if I do nothing. What happens if I just, you know, trust people, for instance. I mean, he's trusting him with 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 a secret at that point because he's he's killed the king. Um, But but he uh, but yeah, there's that there's, there's that fear of of pass passively living and kind of trusting in fates or the world to un- unravel before th- before him or or whether he's going to be the one who can machinate uh his his future for himself speaking of Macduff and Banquo and the uh their relationship with Macbeth, one of the things that sets Macbeth and Lady Macbeth apart, which I find so interesting in the play, and lots of the movies have really hard played into this, is that Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are childless characters. Um, we we believe that that in the past they have probably had a child who must have died somehow. Lady Macbeth does make reference to nursing a child at one point. So something we think, you know, given circumstances, I think, are that a child existed at one point but must have died. Um, but I'm, I'm just sort of surprised how many children are in this play. I mean, out of all Shakespeare's canon, it's not like there's an abundance of kids. Right. But this play has a lot of children. Duncan has two sons. Now, they're adult sons, but they, they're, they're his children being the next to take a line is a major part of the show. Banquo's children, Fleance and the rest of them, are a major part of it. Macduff's children being murdered are a huge driving factor. And even a side character like Seward, there's a whole scene at the end where Seward's son gets killed by Macbeth in the midst of the battle, and they have a really lovely, touching tribute to him after Macbeth has been killed when they find the young Seward's body on the battlefield. So there's children all throughout this play and the importance of those children to their parents is a major thing that happens in the script too, except for Macbeth and Lady Macbeth who are childless. Yeah, yeah. The, the 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 scenes that children feature prominently in this play always have so much weight to them, right? So you have Fleance on the wall with Banquo the night the king dies. You have uh, again those same two characters nearly getting killed. Uh, Banquo does get killed by the murderers, and Fleance managing to escape. You have the only many, many productions have staged on stage deaths of characters, but you have the only called for on stage death of of the character in. In Macduff's son, who who dies on child. stage, right, 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 right. Um, yeah, lots of men die in the play, but the, the only child that's killed on stage, I think, is Macduff's son. The only one specifically called for. I don't. I mean, there's there's plenty of opportunity for characters to die on stage in the play, but almost all the violence happens off stage in the play, or at least the way that the the words are written. There's plenty of other ways to stage it. Um, but the son step like says he's killed me, and so it requires you to have the son die on stage. Um, and and yeah, so so each and Seward Seward uh may, might be the exception to the rule too. Of, and Banquo's of who, murdered on stage, isn't he? That's true. He Never mind. I, re- I, I recant. I recant. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I do think that you're right. That I mean, young, young Seward is an adult, right? He's in battle. 
I mean, yeah. all you know, it was a long time ago, so teenage boys were sent into battle. But it's not the same as Macduff's young child who has this lovely uh, sort of riddling back-and-forth joke contest with mom that's very sweet and cute and is murdered on stage. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, they, they, they bear this kind of weight into the play of, of the kind of hopes and dreams of the parent, and yet they wind up being pawns in 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 Macbeth's kind of reaching for power. Well, and, and here's to me where it comes into concrete horror. I mean, um, there, there's two moments, right? Mac, Macbeth says, uh, he's just learned that Macduff has gone to England and he says, I'll surprise his castle, kill his wife and children, which is like, just because you're mean? Like, what? Do you, right. what is the intention of killing the wife and children? And in fact, a lot of the play, the folks who have played Lady Macbeth have taken that moment because Macbeth doesn't tell her what he's planning either as the moment of like turning for Lady Macbeth where she learns he's going to kill the wife and children of one of his enemies. So there's that moment and it is followed up in the following scene when Macduff learns of Macbeth's murder of his family. His One of his cries is... He has no children. That's yeah. a, I mean, it's a, it's a heartbreaking line, but it's heartbreaking because what does it imply? If Macbeth had children, I would take my revenge on them. Hmm. I would kill his children if he had them. But the cry of grief is he has no children. Now you could read it a different way. If you're playing Macduff, maybe you're, maybe you're crying out, he doesn't understand what it's like to root, lose a kid because he doesn't have it. Maybe, but I think Macduff is saying I would kill his children if he had any. So the, the sins of the parents, the bloody violence of the parents being executed on the children is it runs throughout the play. Really, Fleance is probably the only one to escape. Right, which which all or many of those uh, moments of killing stem from Macbeth's own fear of of his his uh, reign ending in some way. Um, so so you have you have his fear that um, that Banquo's son, because he was there at the prophecy, <laughs> the prophecy that came true for him, he thinks will probably come true for Banquo, and Banquo was uh, prophesied to sire uh, kings, and so uh, he doesn't have a son to to take over the kingship, so he's afraid that Banquo is going to overthrow him, so he kills Banquo. Um, you, you and so so yeah, it's 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 this continued fear um, of of Macbeth that he's going to lose what he has, um, that that continues continues to drive him to keep uh, uh, making choices that perhaps bring him further down the prophecy path and, or away from it. And don't really bring him closer to maintaining his kingship. The murder of Banquo, right. for me, is a turn in Macbeth's character. Uh, and it, this was so when I played Macbeth. There is the there is the desire to be king and the willingness to do whatever Macbeth has to do to make that happen. Of course, they do a terrible thing, not, not to justify that. But then there's this turn where what is killing Banquo's children going to do? Right. He's already king. It's not like Banquo's marching in with an army and Fleance at his side to crown Fleance. Fleance is a kid. Maybe someday he'll be king. But the turn from I'm going to get what I want to I'm willing to kill now that I have what I want out of, I mean, spite the monologue where he talks, where he decides basically to kill uh, uh, Banquo is uh, it is spiteful, right? He says, upon my head, they placed a fruitless crown, da, 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 da. No son of mine succeeding, da, 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 da. If it be so, for Banquo's issue, have I filed my mind? 
for them the gracious Duncan have I murdered. It doesn't seem like the fear is you're going to take the crown from me. It's more like uh, it's, it's almost petty. Like your yeah. children are going to get to be king and my wife and I don't have any children. So to me, that's a turn in, in who Macbeth is and represents kind of one of those turns of the play towards the darkness that ends up consuming, the scorpions that end up consuming Macbeth's mind. Right, right. And if I remember correctly, that's a that's an apparitionless scene there. Yes. <laughs> that's kind of his own machinations that he's trying to like think up a way to yeah, it could be from pettiness, it could be from this fear that he has that he and Lady Macbeth have kind of damned themselves. And so being the ones who wielded the knife, um, they they are they are kind of damned into whatever their afterlife is. And then he's he's uh, that line that you that you just said, he's basically taking on the damning part of killing Duncan so that Banquo and his son can be king, which Macbeth seems to hold as like a very high thing, um, something, something of, of great worth to him. So uh, that, that could be in the mix there too, of this, like, what, what, what did I do all this? Like, <laughs> potentially eternally damning stuff for if if not if if I'm just going to give it away at the end. Right. And there's a there's a moment where Lady Macbeth who's trying to cool Macbeth's anxiety over this murder that has already happened at this point and she says, you know, whatever the line is, what's done cannot be undone. Yeah. Uh, ease your mind or however it is. And, and you know, it's like if Macbeth had taken that advice I don't know that it would have ended so poorly for him. I mean, he's still, he murders Duncan. It's not, again, not that that's a good thing, but the the tyrancy, again, I'm going to use that made-up word, the, the way that he enforces his rule through bloody execution is that, to me, is really what brings his downfall rather than just the murder of Duncan. If he's willing to take Lady Macbeth saying, we've already done it, now just let it go. If he doesn't kill Banquo and son, if he doesn't brutally murder Macduff's family, I mean, what happens to his rule then? It's all speculation, of course, but those are the things which create for him a whole slew of enemies. Exactly. Yeah, that, those are the things that create a bunch of human enemies for himself. The, there's, there's, there's a line with one of the advisors that says something along the lines of this court has become a court of daggers because just so many people are dying uh, as, as a result of Macbeth's machinations to remain in power. And you have a later scene where there's reports coming from Dunsinane where they're saying he, de- he commands by command alone. There is no love for him anymore. So, so you have the slow uh, kind of rotting of his kingship that, that are, is brought about by his continued attempts to try to shore up what he can of his his destiny. Right. And then some of there's a later scene right before they're about to attack where all of these army soldiers who are opposing Macbeth are talking about what's going on inside the castle. And, you know, they basically say Macbeth's gone crazy is the report. And I think it's Angus, but it's one of the many names in this play that doesn't mean a ton. <laughs> he says, now does he feel his secret murders sticking on his hands? What's significant yeah to me about that is the plural murders, right? This is not just about the murder of Duncan. It's about the series of secret murders that Macbeth has put in place. Yeah, and it's fascinating to wonder about like what that castle might have been like. You know, Lady Macbeth is sleepwalking and confessing to things. Macbeth is slipping into these like vision rants and slowly, you know, the secret is no longer a secret anymore. <laughs> and it really starts to get out that 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 the 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 structure around him is crumbling. Yeah, there when in Lady Macbeth's famous hand washing out out damn spot, right? The scene is that the doctor and one of Lady Macbeth's servants are 
are watching her do this. The the servant woman is has been worried because Lady Macbeth has been sleepwalking and doing this hand washing thing night after night. She gets the doctor. They stay up late and watch it happen. And they hear Lady Macbeth confess to all these murders. And the doctor turns to the servant woman, horrified, and says, "We have just heard something that we were really not supposed to hear." <laughs> <laughs> now we have this knowledge that like literally could get us tortured and executed. Oh right. crap, right? And if they have heard it, who else has heard it at this point? <laughs> who else? Yeah, just who else? The the there are many scenes where these characters uh where the Macbeths do not appear like fully in control of themselves. And so you wonder yeah, that how might often be, the that word... might be an understatement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so surely the word has gotten out. <laughs> Well, the one of the things that uh, like scholars like to talk about with Macbeth, and Jackson and I are not going to say anything here that hasn't been said before, but I think it's worth noting when you look at the Macbeth script is the fascinating look at gender and how gender influences the violence, the power negotiations in this play. Uh, you know, I just searched the word man in my copy of Macbeth, and there were like more than a hundred instances of the word man. Some of the notable ones, right? When Lady Macbeth is trying to convince Macbeth to do the murder, she basically accuses him of not being a man, and he responds with all the fury you can muster. You can imagine Michael Fassbender growling in the face of Marianne Cotillard. He says, I dare do all that may become a man. Referencing killing, right? Killing may become a man. Uh, Lady Macbeth accuses that when you were going to do it, then you were a man. Now that you're not going to do it, you're not a man is the accusation. Uh, Macbeth tells the murderers who are going to go after Banquo and Fleance, basically, you better you better succeed at this and not lose heart or you're like the worst rank of manhood, is his accusation. Lady Macbeth, are you a man? She says to Macbeth when he is seeing the ghost of Banquo. Yeah, and there's 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 more there's there's more instances of kind of this this playing around gender. You have right away at the top of the show, you have uh, Banquo calling the witches bearded um, and and kind of uh, mocking them for that. You have um, uh, later on there's 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 a beautiful scene, one of my favorite scenes in the play between Malcolm and and uh, Macduff, where uh, Macduff receives word of of his uh, of his family's death, and he's kind of being trying to trying to be pumped up by Malcolm into this like revenge fury. Um, and he's, and he replies, I shall do so, but I must also feel this as a man as well. To, to so you, me, that line is the core line on which the gender discussion that Shakespeare is having in this play hinges because so many times when Macbeth expresses emotion, anxiety, fear, guilt, shame, he or someone else, chastises his manhood as a response to that. But when Macduff, right, ultimately the Macduff-Malcolm side are the good people in this play. I don't know, you know, the play's more gray than that. But they're the, the champions of the right lineage of Scotland that take over. But when Macduff receives that horrible news that his family's been murdered, he shudders, he cla- I mean, the, the performances of that scene of Macduff, they are what makes the performance of Macduff the performance of Macduff by whoever's doing it. How they collapse in response to that news, yes, but I must also feel it like a man. That's a very different definition of manhood than the Macbeth dark castle murder world that they are trying to oppose. 
Right. Yeah. And and that you're right. It does cast them in a very different light. You cast this kind of group of people that were and and as far as the structure of the play goes, right? We've been sitting with this 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 hero become anti-hero become villain and and we've we've kind of just just really landed on him as a villain, like fully into a villain. Like we were we were rooting for him for a while in the kind of weird like perverse way that you root for anti-villains of like, "Ooh, what if they get found out? I hope they don't get found out." Um and then <laughs> And then eventually you're like, oh, oh no, let's kill these people. And then you're given these other two people in Malcolm and Macduff who, who kind of present a different way to interpret the, the way to kingship. Um, and, and that, that kind of, uh, uh, switches, switches the focus, reorients us and kind of gives us someone else to cheer for in the moment that we need, need it very badly. And that's only the, like the male half of the gender analysis. There's a lot of fascinating things about womanhood and, and, and especially like mothering and the body, right? When Lady Macbeth is trying to tell the spirits to turn her and Macbeth into murderers. What does she say? She says, unsex me here. Turn my woman's milk into gall. Uh, later on, she tells Macbeth that if she had promised to commit this murder, she would rip a, a nursing infant from her breast and dash it into the rock rather than break the promise. A little extreme, I think. But uh, <laughs> So there's, there's a lot there. I, again, we're, we're not really bringing anything brand new to the table, but we would be remiss not to point out the fascinating twists of gender. And I think that really central, concrete uh, capstone to that with Macduff collapsing, yes, but I must also feel it like a man. There's 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 so much depth to this play, and we could continue to talk and talk about it. We're we're gonna be going overtime as it is. What other things we got? There's like so many great quotable lines. So, in this and let's, play. so let's do that, Jackson. We we don't yeah. you know we typically do not have any sense of what we're gonna talk about coming in. Both of us come with things that are interesting, but before this one, we both agreed that we were gonna bring favorite lines because yeah. I think Macbeth is the most quotable of the Shakespeare plays. I mean, look, Shakespeare wrote a lot of really great quotes, right? Friends, Romans countrymen lend me your ears in sooth i know not why i am so sad the quality of mercy is not strained all to of be these or great, not to, to be, be or yeah. not uh, to yeah. be yeah trippingly on the tongue i mean all these great quotes in shakespeare but i i would guess that per capita macbeth has more of those quotes that you could just say in context both to prove that you're very smart and know shakespeare oh la la, but also because they're <laughs> dramatically written emphatically said and very memorable so we both have favorite lines that we'd like to share. Do you want to go first, Jackson? Yeah, sure. I'll go first. It's a it's a very well known one. It's it's the out out brief candle out out brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And I, and I love that line because it's it's just full of really great imagery. It's beautiful, beautiful writing. Um, but also because where it comes in Macbeth's story. This is after Lady Macbeth has died. This is when he thinks he's in. Invincible. He's gotten the, the word that like no man can kill him, that a forest has to uproot itself and move before that he's going to die. And yet he's sitting there in this throne room sit, saying that, 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 that life essentially is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And you see the depths to which this ambition filled human has gone to attain his ambition. And yet it is vapid for him in this moment. Right. It's this Signify- Nothing, 
Right? There's yeah. an earlier moment where Macbeth says, basically, if I had died, I, this is, he, he, oh, I remember where this comes. Everybody's discovered that Duncan has just been murdered. There's great clamor. And Macbeth, in, in what basically is a lie, says, had I but died an hour before this chance, I had lived a blessed life. But many of the actors who play Macbeth, including myself, when I played Macbeth, read that second level of that line, right? If I had died before I did this murder, my life would have been blessed. So Macbeth turns from this life of uh, upward trajectory to signifying nothing. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a powerful reversal slash be careful what you wish for sort of <laughs> uh, message that is that is kind of uh, brought to the fore in this in this one of the final monologues from him. And one of the great masters of theater, Shakespeare, showing off his meta theater writing capabilities, right? So it's a line where <laughs> yeah. Macbeth compares the uh, the bloody executions he's done in his life to a play in the midst of a play. Yeah. And Shakespeare, boy, he does that a lot, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm very self-aware of that writer. <laughs> okay, well, well, my line is from those moments. This is after he has started to do the murders of Banquo and Fleance. I can't remember if he's quite gotten to the Macduff murders yet, but in the midst of discovering that there's really no turning back, he says, I am in blood stepped in so far that should I wade no more, returning were as tedious as go or." And there's so much that's great about that. The imagery is incredible. The, the, the rhythm, the writing is incredible. But this is how good a writer Shakespeare is because in that line, it's a double metaphor. And it's just so good, right? There's the metaphor that the murders that he has had people do for him or done himself are accumulating like blood around him, right? He's in blood. And then he, for Shakespeare extends that metaphor to say, and all of that is like waiting in a sea. And like when you wade in a sea, there's a point where you getting back to shore is just as hard as continuing on into the water. And Shakespeare takes those two metaphors and makes them one metaphor to describe the way Macbeth feels that there is no returning from this world of terrible deeds that he has done. I mean... Shakespeare's mastery of imagery and metaphor and language. One of the other great, great lines from this play is... Um, it will have blood, they say. Blood will have blood. Now, lots mm -hmm. of writers, right, they would leave a, a mystery. They might put the subject in that sentence but leave the object vague. What will blood have? Blood will have blood. But Shakespeare, in his infinite genius, makes the <laughs> subject vague and the object clear. It mm. will have blood, they say. We know the object, blood. We don't know the subject. And then the, the revelation, the terrible English language reveal of what he's been discussing, blood will have blood, they say. I mean, it, it is masterful use of the English language from the 1605 or whatever. <laughs> right. Well, they're still inventing it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, both of those scenes, uh, both of those, uh, those, those monologues held so much kind of weight to what he's done. And they're both very fitting endings to this murder. Murder uh, <laughs> month. This murder podcast. No, this murder episode in our themed month on on th murder theater plays this is such a great play so many different iterations we could have a bunch of conversations about the different iterations and the different pr productions and the choices that a production
production team can make on it because it is so interpretable, so uh, such staying power in the themes and 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 things that that the play is talking about. So fortunately, the conversation does not have to end here. We'd love to keep talking to all of you out there about Macbeth. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast or our Gmail NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about this play with you. Absolutely. If you've liked this podcast, if you like any of our other podcasts, if you love the fact that we do theme months, anything, just recommend the podcast to your family and friends. We are so reliant and so grateful on on and for everyone doing their part to spread the word about No Script. Our listenership grows and grows. It's a privilege. You can send folks to Podbean. That's where we're hosted. But you can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. And if you just like the page on Facebook, then you'll see both the advertisements when they come out for what script is coming up, but also there'll be a link to the new episode every Monday that you can click and play. If you or someone you love is not tech savvy, if they got a Facebook, they can just click and play on our no script page. It is as easy as that. Hey, next week we are still in our themed month. We'll be coming at you with another murder play. Murder. I can't say it in that voice enough. Enough time. Mad, I must foul. (laughs) So uh, we'll be coming at you with another play in our theme month next week. Until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for listening to No Script, the podcast. We'll murder you next week. No, we'll we'll see you next week for Murder Month. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) 